Not to alarm anyone or anything, but I have a breaking news alert from an article from Neuroscience News, May 4th, 2022. This article may be the key to life or death, so you can thank us for that later. And the article is titled, Fecal Transplants Reverse Hallmarks of Aging. Right. You hear it here second, as always. Scientists at the Quadrum Institute and the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England, have found evidence from research on mice that fecal microbiota from young into old mice can reverse hallmarks of aging in the gut, eyes, and brain. Go figure. These findings show that gut microbes a role in regulating some of the detrimental effects of aging and open up the possibility of gut microbe-based therapies to combat decline later on in life. Professor Simon Carding from UEA's Norwich Medical School and head of the Gut Microbes and Health Research Program at the Quadrum Institute says, quote, this groundbreaking study provides tantalizing evidence for the direct involvement of gut microbes in aging and the functional decline of brain function and the vision and offers a potential solution in the form of gut microbe replacement therapy. Apparently, it's been known for a while that our gut microbes, aka microbiota, is linked to health and most diseases are associated with changes in the type and behavior of bacteria, viruses, etc. in one's gut, which is pretty crazy. And it kind of makes sense. It does. And it's something that hasn't been studied too much until recently. So there's been tons of breakthroughs in the last 20 years on this area of science. Yeah. And it seems like they're going all out on this. They go on. Some of these changes happen naturally as we age and can cause such things as autoimmune, neurodegenerative disorders, and the list goes on. In order to study this, the answer is equal transplant from young to old and old to young. But we probably don't want to do old to young. They're probably just doing it to study from what it seems to say in this article. Old to young is bad. I mean, they got all this extra fecal matter just laying around. They just want to swap it every which way to see what's going on. And then they want to study it. Everything. Gut, brain, eyes. In the young, this led to the loss of integrity of the gut, allowing bacterial products to cross into the circulation and triggered the immune system and inflammation of the eyes and brain. They also found proteins in the eye associated with retinal degeneration and a host of other elderly mouse problems like early dinners and general elderly grumpiness. In the old mice, the changes they had had already been experienced reversed. Dinner time was now 9 p.m. Can you believe it? All the other degenerative gut, eye, and brain seemingly reversed as well. Now they're going on to study how long this can last, analyzing the products these bacteria produce by breaking down diet. Now I'm about to blow your mind some more. Similar pathways exist in humans, not just mice. No, we're all thinking mice. This is crazy news for mice is also humans. However, there is a warning not to try this at home yet. You must experiment on the elderly first. (laughs) But then they need the young people fecal. Don't try this at home. A new facility at the Microbiota Replacement Therapy, aka the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation, is being built at the Quadrum Institute that will facilitate such trials and other trials, whatever that may entail. So yes, we're in the future. We have 
a new equal microbiota transplant facility in the works. Future is now. Lead author of the study, Dr. Amy Parker, says our results provide more evidence of the important links between microbes in the gut and healthy aging of tissues and organs around the body. We hope that our findings will contribute ultimately to understanding how we can manipulate our diet and our gut bacteria to maximize good health in later life. And that's the article. It's pretty crazy stuff, actually. The craziest thing, I think, is that there are people working on their PhDs and their entire process is taking poop from young mice and shoving that same poop in old mice. That'll be their life. But can you imagine the first person that was like, let's try taking the poop and putting it into an older mouse and vice versa. And let's see what happens. Fecal transplants are actually a thing they do with humans on a semi-regular basis at this point. It can treat things such as um, obesity, for one. There's many other things too. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But somebody at one point said, that guy looks healthy. Let's just take some of his poop and put a little bit in this unhealthy person and it'll fix them. And then they're like, wow, we were right? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's a weird, wondrous world of poop out there. We will keep you guys all in the loop if any other poop related science comes out because it's probably up there as some of the best science to talk about. That's our promise to you. But with that, I think we can get on with the show. Okay, let's do it. From the unexplained to the mundane, why don't you come join us on our journey to the fringe? Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, the show that had its mission statement lost due to not saving as we worked. But it can't be that hard to remember, it's in the name, pretty sure. Anyhow, we are Taylor and Chelsea, your heads of the occult sect of this glancing look into the depths of man. And today that depth is water, because water has depth, um, something like that. I don't know, but kind of got away from me at one point. But either way, I did save the script, so why don't you follow along, grab a drink to maintain hydration and see some fringe ways we be fucking with our wet friend named water agua shui or i don't know the french just like hit their keyboard a bunch for a lot of words it is true anyhow today we are going to be talking about pollution in water which in and of itself i don't think is a fringe topic but we're going to be focusing on some very particular areas of it that you probably did not know about you know the way that you've been hyping this up i'm really not looking forward to it it's not as bad as it once was going to be because i had to take a specific look i'm going to tell you right off the bat i had to take everything out with with regards to fracking, with regards to mining, and with regards to basically anything you would normally think of when you actually think of water pollution, okay. including the reference to Yellowknife having enough arsenic to kill every person in the world. I remember that. So unfortunately, that all had to come out. I did managed to encapsulate almost all of my scenario of pollution that we experience in one example, but unfortunately one slipped through. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised with the ways that we screw with the water. Okay. Is it going to be pleasant? Probably not, no, but I use language in a loose way anyways. I might just be surprised. Maybe not pleasantly. Yes, and just don't worry about the existential dread that comes with it. It's just something you bathe in as the world is. I do on this podcast. Now, why are we talking about water and water pollution? Well, 
our waterways aren't in great shape. A lot of this is going to be framed from a U.S. perspective, but it will be other parts of the world that come up as well. The U.S. has something called the Clean Water Act that was meant to kind of fix the waterways as they were being horribly, horribly polluted. And the Clean Water Act requires states to submit periodic reports on the condition of their rivers, streams, lakes, and estuaries to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Based on the latest of these reports, about half of the rivers and streams and lake acres that have been studied across the U.S. are so polluted they're classified as impaired. That means that they are too polluted to meet standards for swimming and recreation, aquatic life, fish consumption, or as drinking water sources. 50% of the water in the U.S. is too polluted to touch. But the study also went on. Today, almost four decades after the Clean Water Act's deadline for fishable and swimmable waters across the U.S., 51% assessed rivers and stream miles across the U.S., more than 700,000 miles of waterways, remain impaired with pollution, as well as 55% of lake acres and 26% of estuary miles. Water pollution is a huge problem, and it is not just in the normal ways that you would think about your streams, lakes, and groundwater getting polluted. Okay. I have a few examples of a situation you might find yourself in where you are contributing in ways you wouldn't expect to the overall water pollution. Oh, fuck. Okay. I'm not ready for this. And the first one that I just couldn't work into my example. Again, it's a great example. I just need to get this one out of the way because it doesn't quite fit in because my example happens in the summertime and unfortunately this doesn't happen too much in the summertime. But that is the salification of our waterways, which is actually a very big problem that nobody seems to know about. People have long known that salting roads helps keep them free from ice. Mm. But what hasn't been well understood is how the millions of tons of salt spread on U.S. roads every year impacts the environment. Recent research indicates that salt is accumulating in the environment and poses an emerging threat both to ecosystems and human health. In a study, the researchers found that 37% of the drainage area of the contiguous United States has experienced an increase in salinity over the last 50 years, citing road salt as the dominant source in colder humid regions of the northeastern United States. Groundwater sources can also be compromised. A multi-year study found that more than half the private drinking water wells sampled in East Fishkill, New York, exceeded EPA standards for sodium. The distance to the nearest road and amount of nearby pavement strongly influenced well water salinity, of course. Now, the salt is something of a ticking time bomb for freshwater, says Riverkeeper President and Earth Institute adjunct Professor Paul Gallet. Studies suggest that the increasing concentration we see in many places may be the result of road salt spread decades ago, which reached groundwater and is only now slowly reaching surface water. And once it's been introduced to an ecosystem, salt can become a persistent problem. Once salt gets into soil or into waterways, there are no biological processes that will remove it, says aquatic ecologist Andrew Jewell. Salt can leave these systems through transport and it can be diluted by fresher water coming in so that the levels become less concerning. However, without transport out of the system, like in an isolated lake or aquifer, the salt will continue to persist over very long timescales. Just as concerning as sodium is the increasing amount of chloride found in U.S. waterways. A 2014 U.S. Geological Survey found that 84% of the urban streams studied had rising chloride levels and 29% exceeded federal safety guidelines for at least part of the year. Where is the chloride coming from? Sodium chloride. 
Oh, okay. It's okay. basically salt just breaking down. Okay, I thought it was just people emptying pools into a lake. Yeah, no, not quite. But one of the concerning things is chloride is toxic to aquatic life, and even low concentrations can produce harmful effects in freshwater ecosystems. High chloride levels in water can inhibit aquatic species growth and reproduction, impact food sources, and disrupt osmoregulation in amphibians. Some 40% of urban streams in the U.S. already have chloride levels that exceed the safe guidelines for aquatic life. Runoff containing road salt can also cause oxygen depletion in bodies of water. If runoff containing salt goes into the freshwater lake or stream, it will tend to sink towards the bottom, creating a dense layer that can inhibit gas exchange with the overlying water. This can lead to the development of low oxygen conditions that are detrimental to fish and other aquatic organisms. In recent years, Mirror Lake in New York's Adirondack Park has struggled with dissolving oxygen issues due to the high salt content. Salt is also very corrosive, as many car owners can attest, but salt eats away at more than just auto bodies. It corrodes roads, bridges, and other infrastructure. It's been estimated that damage from salt corrosion alone may cost the U.S. as much as $5 billion a year. And in some states, no salt is off the table when it comes to road maintenance. Some 13 states in the U.S. allow salty wastewater from oil and gas production wells to be spread on the highways. However, studies have found that these wastewater brines can contain toxic elements, including radium, a carcinogen, and that these contaminants could accumulate in soil, groundwater, or even become airborne. There's no silver bullet when it comes to keeping roads safe for winter travel while protecting the environment. But as the damaging effects of road salt on the environment become clear, new strategies, initiatives, and innovations will be required to protect America's water resources. The salt we continue to spread will have impacts far into the future. That's where I'm going to leave it. The only thing I really want to say is how do you decide what is the lesser of two evils? The one where it's extremely relevant to when it snows and people want salt on the road so that they can drive and not get into an accident or the one that they're not seeing in which it's eventually going down into the waterways and affecting every single part of our life eventually. Killing all life in those waterways, destroying the soil because it's got salt in it as well which isn't great for any yeah. plants. I think the best answer is actually just use sand. Yeah, I mean, it's more detrimental than that, but nobody, it's not in the forefront, so nobody thinks of it, nobody knows it's happening, and they're thinking, you know, I want the salt off the road, or the snow off the road, so that I can drive and not get in an accident. Is salt less expensive than sand, or gravel? I or? couldn't tell you. We're actually living through peak sand right now, but that's for very particular types of sand, so probably another episode when we talk about peaks. I know, we're in Vancouver, they're all about salt. Never, it's yeah. like in the winter, there's warning of snow, there's salt everywhere. Yeah, which is terrible. I mean, at least most of that's going into the ocean, but still a lot of it's going to go into the ground and or into the deltas that go into the ocean. So yeah, just try to avoid salt if you can, because it's horrible for the environment, especially our waterways. Yeah, good to know. And with that out of the way, now I can actually throw in my uh, scenario and we can break down all the different ways that we are hurting the environment. <sighs> Picture this, it's probably midsummer where you live. You are driving to go celebrate your country's relationship ending with England, probably your celebration day. Uh. You have some festivities in the back to celebrate with as you're driving. Of course, you had your feel-good drugs in the morning to make it just a little bit easier to get through the day. And you are driving and you stop at a red light. There are about five different ways you're impacting the waterways right here in that situation. First and foremost, stopping at the light, you use your brakes. 
and your brakes have metallic brake pads that are commonplace throughout the world. Most brake pads fitted to our vehicles contain copper and other heavy metals like mercury, lead, cadmium, and chromium. Copper is used in our brake pads because it makes for a smooth braking experience and also has properties that help prevent brakes from squeaking and shuddering when used. What many people don't know is that copper leached from brake pads can have lethal impacts on urban water quality and aquatic life. When we use the brakes on our car, fine particles of copper and other metals in the brake pads flake off and are deposited on our roadways. When it rains, these particles are washed into gutters through the stormwater system where they flow into our rivers and lakes. This is the most common source of metal pollutants in our waterways. Other metals in our waterways include zinc from vehicle tire wear and runoff from galvanized iron roofs. Because most metals do not break down, all the metals released in stormwater discharges will end up somewhere in the environment and will be there forever. Copper and zinc are essential trace elements for animals, plants, and microorganisms. However, at high concentrations, both copper and zinc have toxic effects that can be lethal, resulting in death or sublethal. In 2010, both the states of Washington and California did take steps to address this, and they passed legislation requiring brake pads sold or installed to have reduced levels of copper and other heavy metals. Elsewhere, there is little awareness, though, of this issue. I had no idea. Many motorists do not know the damage that is being caused by the brake pads they use, or that they have a choice when selecting brake pads for installation in their vehicles that are less detrimental. I fall into that category. Yeah, and thankfully this is one that does somewhat have an answer. Low copper and copper-free friction materials used in brake pads can now outperform other friction materials, and they do not compromise vehicle safety or performance, and they, the cost of installing copper-free or reduced copper brake pads is only about 10 to $15 more. If you're gonna take anything from this episode, because there's not a lot I give other than this one, you can change what type of brake pads you're using, and you're gonna have less impact on the environment. Or you could just stop stopping at red lights and stop signs. You could just gun it. Yeah. But then you're safe the planet could tell the police and not let them know you learned it here but just quote everything about what our brake pads are doing to the planet about why say i got a guy he told me i need to not break yeah. it's killing don't everything. mention us though but we're helping you out so we stopped at that red light and that was not the only water pollution that we created to stopping assuming it was a bit of a harder stop and that is of course the rubbers on the road our rubber tires that are on every single vehicle have something called two Anilino, and sorry, you know what? I'm just going to call it 6PPD Quinon for short. I'm familiar. Yeah, I knew it. And this isn't something you actually buy anywhere. No one actually manufactures it. It is not put into car tires, plastics, or any other product that might wind up polluting creeks. Researchers consulted to try to identify the poison lurking in creeks near busy roadways. Finally, they realized a tire rubber stabilizer called 6PPD degrades into a highly toxic salmon killer as tires wear. <gasps> No! You put this chemical, this transformation product, into a fish tank and salmon die really fast. Oh, and nearly no. all tires worldwide contain 6-PPD and shed the toxic 6-PPD quinone. It's used to prevent degradation and cracking of the rubber compound, which is critical for tire safety. The preservative protects tire rubber from damaging effects of ozone in the air by reacting first with the ozone. But in doing so, it turns into a salmon killer. Runoff from pavement carries a stew of thousands of different, mostly unidentified chemicals into nearby waters from motor oil, antifreeze, tire dust, and more. That runoff 
runoff is the main source of toxic pollution in waterways where fish in urban bays often have tumors and lesions. Ocean roaming salmon find their way home to fresh water to spawn each fall as autumn rains cause coastal creeks to rise, but up to 90% of the returning fish die, gasping for breath and swimming aimlessly in the creeks before they're able to spawn. Nabbing the salmon killer is the fruit of decades of work by dozens of researchers. And the new paper in the journal Science, salmon were first observed behaving strangely and dying in creeks in Bellingham and Seattle in the 1980s. By 2018, scientists at the University of Washington and Washington State University had zeroed in on car tires as the apparent source for the problem, but even the tread on a single tire can be a hodgepodge of hundreds of different substances. He said the toxic effects of chemicals vary widely from species to species, and the effect is unknown on many, including humans. And if that's not worrisome, tire crumbs are widely used as artificial turf for playing fields for children. Mm. Wear and tear on car tires in U.S. roads sends 1.5 million tons a year of microplastics into the environment, a Dutch researcher estimates in 2017. That works up to 10 pounds for every person in the United States, more than twice as much as any of the 12 other countries the researcher studied. Well, that's like a proud thing. They're like recycling tires. So they're like, yeah, we're recycling tires. They use it as like sand at some playgrounds now too. Recycle tires and like they use it as turf. Those damn salmon, they just can't get a break. I feel so bad for them. Like it's drought. It's like all these things that are just stacked against them. And I would assume, is it just salmon or just salmon that were studied with this? This was a study out of the Pacific Northwest. So it was uh -huh. just done on salmon. Yeah, because I think salmon are mostly in the Pacific Northwest. I was just curious because tires are everywhere, but salmon are pretty localized to specific areas. I'm assuming it's more than just salmon, but they just can't catch a break, those poor guys. Yeah, it's not like we aren't just putting like terrible things into the environment in general. We're putting something out there that is just like specifically made to kill salmon. Yeah, I would assume it has to do more with salmon other than the fact that it's localized study to salmon, but these guys like when you're going from salt water into fresh water too I guess into rivers that brings on a whole other swarm of problems but uh, I feel so and they just might be particularly vulnerable because they are moving from a salt water to a fresh water which is already yeah. terrible for their bodies yeah you would assume so and it brings on this whole other host of problems but you would also think it's other fish but this study is specific to the Pacific Northwest where salmon are it was specific to coho salmon as well I just shortened it to salmon okay. So you would think I thought probably other fish would be susceptible in fresh water. Yeah. Things, and I would think. That is going to actually end it for our car-related portion of water pollution. I thought it best to avoid talking about gas, any of the other fluids that leak out, because I think those are fairly obviously damaging to the environment. They are obvious. Whereas these are both things that people wouldn't really think about. I wouldn't think about it. I didn't know that stopping was creating such a problem, to be honest with you. So I'm going to do less of that moving forward or you know drive less that also answers the problem i could do either i i'm gonna choose to stop <laughs> okay our fictitious character who is tranquil on the pharmaceuticals he is consuming is also having a massive impact on the environment simply by participating in the fugue state that is the modern day pharmaceutical industry. In a 2004-2009 US Geological Survey, scientists found that pharmaceutical manufacturing facilities can be a significant source of pharmaceuticals to the environment. Effluents from two wastewater treatment plants that receive discharge from a pharmaceutical manufacturing facility 
facility had 10 to 1,000 times higher concentrations of pharmaceuticals than effluents from wastewater treatment plants across the nation that do not receive pharmaceutical manufacturing facility discharges. The release waters from these two wastewater treatment plants were discharged to streams where the measured pharmaceuticals were traced downstream and as far as 30 kilometers from one plant's outfall. What? That's another thing. We've talked about it in other episodes. I always go, have you ever seen the ads that say don't flush your medication down the toilet because it's bad for our waterways? And this comes up right now as well. We've talked about this where they make it seem like you're the one making the whole big issue, but it's the pharmaceutical plants. I mean, it's actually both. They definitely do it Not that I've done it. But it is both. did their impact on me. I do not do it. I take it back to the pharmacy just because of that. I'm like, oh, that is bad. Okay. But why are they making me feel bad when they're doing it? They are doing it. But the source of pharmaceuticals and water is not just from manufacturing plants. You probably know that antibiotics and drugs are used in livestock industry and for streams receiving runoff from animal feeding operations, pharmaceuticals see such as acetaminophen, caffeine, cottonine, diphenhydramine, and carbamazepine have been found in US. USGS studies and another source of pharmaceuticals in stream water is both you and me and our fictitious character. When people flush their old prescription drugs, as we just talked about, the compounds invariably make their way into the waters nearby. The same is true even when people using these chemicals urinate them into the sewage system. Once there, these compounds from Prozac to cocaine can end up in the bodies of aquatic creatures, and research suggests the chemicals can impact them. Even birth control, for instance, affects frogs' breedings after it enters the water. It might sound surprising that these drugs could be detected in streams miles downstream from wastewater treatment plants, but many plants do not routinely remove pharmaceuticals from water. The United States Geological Survey study did an interview with a professor of ecology by the name of Dr. Paul Bradley, and I just wanted to quote him here. At this point, the primary concern has got to be aquatic wildlife like fish, because many of these compounds are obviously produced for functioning in human beings. Presence of these compounds in rivers, in streams, or even worse, in drinking water supplies is obviously a matter of deep concern for a lot of people. But it's important to remember, people don't actually live in rivers or streams, and the concentration, for example, of pharmaceuticals that are being observed in drinking water supplies are in fact much, much much lower than their therapeutic dose. That is, the concentration that they were intended to work in human beings. On the other hand, fish and other aquatic wildlife do live in rivers and they're much more vulnerable to certain types of emerging contaminants. For example, endocrine disrupts compounds, can alter the hormone system of fish, resulting in changes in secondary sexual characteristics, and potentially resulting in reproductive failure. There has been a recent study, for example, that is getting a lot of attention, which reports that some popular sport fish like largemouth and smallmouth bass are exhibiting female characteristics even in the male fish and this phenomenon appears to be widespread in rivers and streams across the U.S. and this study included two rivers in South Carolina the PD River and the Savannah River and this kind of sexual observation was observed in both of these rivers and as well they cited a few studies in this article that I was reading and I just wanted to read the headlines of these scientific papers to show you the damage that's going on. I love headlines. Collapse of a fish pop Population after exposure to a synthetic estrogen by K.A. Kidd et al. The role of the natural environment in the emergence of antibiotic resistance in gram-negative bacteria by E.M. Willington et al. Dilute concentrations of psychiatric drugs alter behavior of fish from natural population. T. Broden 
J. Fick, M. Johnson, J. Clemender. And of course, my favorite title, Methamphetamine Pollution Elicits Addiction in Wild Fish, as predicted, of course, by King of the Hill. Now, hold on there. This is uh, natural bait. Homemade in the USA. P. Horky et al. Oh, the poor animals. They have no control over it. It's what they get from their environment. Yeah, and I do just want to finish this part off with this. It's a little throwback to Alex Jones, who I can't stand. The guy peddles half-truths in a very loud, aggressive voice. And he is very famous for saying the frogs are turning gay. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Turn, turn the, the friggin', friggin frogs, frogs gay. Serious crap. Gay. Frogs friggin' frogs. It's not funny. I'm gonna say it real slow for you. Gay. Frogs. Which is absolutely kind of true. In a sense that they're swapping genders because of issues of chemicals in their rivers. Atrazine, one of the world's most widely used pesticides, wreaks havoc with the sex lives of adult male frogs, masculating three quarters of them and turning one in ten into females, according to a new study of University of California Berkeley biologists. So he yelled the frogs are turning gay. They're not turning gay. They are uh, swapping between genders as they are very susceptible to chemicals in their system as they have permeable skin. So, yeah. Wow. I mean, that's one way to put it if you're... If you're a loud, angry person, you could also just explain the situation correctly. Yeah. But he wouldn't The right way. Yeah. Yeah. No, he wouldn't do that. Wow, that is, this is all, I don't know how to take this information. Well. I know you have more. (laughs) I have many more, don't worry. Of course, we are on our way to celebrate our country leaving Britain behind, wherever that may be. What better way to do that than with fireworks? Fireworks, despite the fact that the visual displays can be quite spectacular, are growing concerns about the potential for fireworks pollute lakes and groundwater. Fireworks are comprised of a long list of chemicals used to create colors, noise, and propulsion into the sky. Often these displays occur near or over waters to enhance their viewing pleasure. Or, you know, because we live in a uh, hellscape and it will burn everything to the ground if it's not over water. So that's uh, that's another reason. Once launched, the chemicals can potentially be deposited directly into a body of water or washed in from the shore after a rainstorm. In addition, the debris left behind after fire explosions can be coated with these same harmful chemicals. The the potential for pollution. Any debris deposited in waterways could be considered a water quality violation, of course, under environmental laws, but they're not really enforced, particularly around national celebrations. While the amount of debris left after the ignition of fireworks displays may seem minor, multiple homes displays around a lake or repeated commercial displays can cumulatively contribute a significant amount of debris to a water or body. That debris is not only unsightly, it serves as potential source of chemical contaminants to the water body. Heavy metals such as copper and other elements are used in fireworks to create many of the colors we observe. These chemicals in concentrations above certain levels can be harmful to humans and aquatic life. Another chemical compound, perchlorate, ClO4, is used to assist in the skywards propulsion of fireworks. At this time, perchlorate is an unregulated compound in much of the US. Uh, This study came out of New Hampshire. But studies have raised concerns regarding its ability to disrupt the body's synthesis of thyroid hormones, including fish development, which can also be affected by high concentrations of perchlorate. Massachusetts has set a standard for perchlorate concentrate in drinking water of two micrograms. I'm not sure what that logo means. They've set a drinking water standard. However, 
fireworks containing nutrients that contribute to algal and plant growth in lakes as well. Four relatively recent studies provide insight on some of the effects that fireworks can have on water and air quality. In 2009, a study from Lake George, New York, indicated that perchlorate had no effects on water quality with concentrations on water samples below the standards set in Massachusetts. Before and after municipal firework display, a study of groundwater conducted at Dartmouth, Massachusetts from 2004 to 2006 indicated that perchlorate concentrations were elevated in the groundwater test, well above 25 times the legal standards set in Massachusetts. And in soil that it was fired over, it was about 400 times higher than the standard near the firework launch areas. A study of a small Oklahoma lake from 2004 to 2006 reported that after commercial fireworks displays, perchlorate concentrations in water samples averaged 22 times the maximum standard after 20 days. Wow. And in addition, a study of air quality in Pearl City, Hawaii from 2004 to 2011 documented high levels of metal in air samples during commercial firework displays. In some cases, certain metals exceeded EPA air quality benchmarks too. However, metal concentrations in the air dissipated within 24 hours of the display, and the American Fireworks Standards Laboratory has published lists of approved and banned chemicals for use in commercial and home consumer fireworks. However, it is important to note that many of the fireworks sold in the United States are imported from other countries, primarily China, and may not conform to these requirements, nor are those imported fireworks regularly tested. We know they're bad. We're doing studies to say this is not good. Yes. But no one is saying, don't do that. Yeah. Nobody's saying, here's a better alternative. Nobody's saying, stop. The only reason actually people are saying, hey, maybe don't use fireworks is literally because they could burn down the country. Because in some places they're like, hey, let's just do a drone display. Yeah, drones. That's a much better thing. And we have the technology to do that now. But we're doing the studies. We see what it's doing. The general population is probably not readily aware of this. I was not aware of this. I mean, can't be great when you think of it. I didn't know that it was to this extent, but nobody was saying, you know, these are the studies. We're not going to have fireworks anymore because this is what they're doing. And it's probably because people love fireworks so much that they're like, meh. Like, if we yeah. just don't tell them, it'll be fine and they can still enjoy fireworks. Like, North Americans love fireworks. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's as American as I, I don't know anything more American than a big flashy show that explodes. And I'm gonna go there. They're making money by selling the fireworks. And if somebody was to say don't do fireworks because it's actually like poisoning us all, somebody would not be making money from those fireworks. Essentially what it comes down to. Yeah, I more or less. Yes. Yeah, is that, you know, no one's going to make money from them and it's a big money maker. Thankfully, the scenario that I'm in now has the individual die. What with it either being a traffic accident, an overdose of the prescriptions, just firework a terrible accident. diet, or a firework-related mishap. Our scenario has now ended with the death of an individual. And surely that stops their water pollution, right? Okay. Right? Uh... I would say yes, until you're implying that it may not be. So I'm going to say, you know, with a question mark. 
Okay, now we're going to talk about cemeteries. A whole lot more than a corpse gets buried. There's also coffins, which may be treated with varnish, sealers, and preservatives. There's embalming fluids, which previously contained arsenic and mercury. And more recently, formaldehyde, also a known carcinogen. And a variety of metals, including mercury from amalgam, dental fillings, and non-ferrous metals, such as silver, platinum, palladium, and cobalt from jewelry and orthopedic implants. Fertilizers from the large amounts of landscaping undertaken at the cemeteries, chemical substances applied in chemotherapy, and pathogenic bacteria such as E. coli and viruses are all in a cemetery. And they can be considered a landfill of sort, as there is a higher than normal concentration of potentially contaminative materials located in one place. In general, the shorter the time over which burials occur and the higher the number of burials, the greater the risk of groundwater pollution. The ground itself also plays a significant role. The geological and hydrogeological characteristics of the soil, including soil type, permeability, and porosity, as well as the depth of the water table, all determine the ease and rate of release of contaminants to groundwater. And the groundwater is the most obvious receptor to potential contaminations from cemeteries since it is closest to the source. And as groundwater contributes a significant source of water supply, it's a resource to be protected. But the link between burial sites and groundwater isn't exactly a new issue. Historical accounts from the mid-1800s, after cholera and influenza epidemics killed tens of thousands of people, reported that the waters within wells, which at the time were often sunk nest graveyards, had become so offensive to both smell and taste that it could not be used. There are few modern studies on the topic though, so it's hard to assess the real-world impact of cemeteries on groundwater. One such study was undertaken at a cemetery in the West Midlands, located on the second most important drinking water aquifer in England, with graves dug to two meters below ground level and the groundwater levels generally five meters below the surface. The results of the studies showed that groundwater down hydraulic gradient from the cemetery had slightly elevated concentrations of chloride and sulfate, as well as highly contaminated levels of pathogenic bacteria. Wow. And another problem is that cemetery plots are becoming increasingly crowded despite cremations having been the more popular option for the better half of a century. Wow. Even dying doesn't do much. Wow, that's not even something I would have thought of, sorry to cut you off, is groundwater no, because they're being buried so far into the ground that it's just seeping into the groundwater. But at least this one does have its options. I, for one, intend to be just thrown into the bush when I am no longer of this world, to be one with nature, to be consumed by animals, and to get natural predators of human a taste for human and thereby bring the human population in check. Yeah. Might I suggest the same for the rest of you out there? There are cemeteries, but I believe there, I saw, as weird as it may sound, I did see that there are certain religions that do that where it's just like kind of like free-for-all oh, open sky funerals oh, yeah i don't know that's what it's called. yeah it is but, they, they let the scavengers eat them you know what this would be a fun episode to do which would be like <laughs> what to do with a body <laughs> not what to do with the body it's escaping me now like uh the business of death essentially funeral is rights? i would want to call it funeral funeral homes cemeteries it's actually a very interesting monopolized business a very weirdly monopolized industry it is America. so weird but you're bringing up a whole other point to it that i didn't even think about like that's 
crazy because of course it's seeping into the ground level if you're being buried that far down. And the whole way we do it, like we need you to look nice for the funeral. So of course we get you embalmed. We need you to be in a very nice casket that apparently we don't want to break down and let you become one with nature. No, we don't. We want to make it as expensive and chemicalized as possible. We want arsenic in the wood. They're also going to make you look really nice. And this is one thing that didn't make my list as I thought it was maybe a little too within people's minds is makeup is actually pretty terrible for the environment as well. I guess when you're being buried into it, I've never thought about makeup, my makeup impacting the environment because I'm just walking around. I'm not like being buried into the earth. If you're wearing makeup that has any SPF protection in it, terrible yep. for the water supply. So if you cry or it is raining and it is smeared, there you go. Okay, don't cry, don't go swimming, don't wear it in the rain. And to finish this all off, well, of course, this affects our waterways, but we have water treatment plants set up specifically to make at least the water that we're drinking safe and usable by us. And that's, that's for the most part correct. However... Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't there are studies coming out that water going out of a wastewater treatment plant is actually worse sometimes than it going in, in particular ways. What? A new study has underscored the complexity of treating, we talked about this not that long ago, PFAS, the plastics. PFAS, of course. One of the country's most prolific and widespread water contaminants, while highlighting the futility in attempting to address the problem at wastewater treatment facilities. PFAS compounds are found in greater quantities in treated water leaving Michigan wastewater treatment plants, the water returning to streams, rivers, and lakes, than in the not yet treated water entering the plant. A new Western Michigan University study found. Detailed studies of 10 wastewater treatment plants in Michigan with industrial pretreatment programs, efforts to remove PFOS compounds from the industrial sources before the water reaches the plant, found PFOS concentrations as much as 19 times higher in the plant's effluents or outflows than its influence. 19 times higher. Wow. And Michigan currently has some of the strictest drinking water and groundwater standards in the nation. Wow. The state's cleanup criteria are eight parts per trillion for PFOAs, perfluorooctane PFOAs, and 16 parts per trillion for PFOS. For Michigan's wastewater treatment plant, as with similar facilities around the country, the problem seems to lie in the complexities of PFOS compounds themselves and the challenges ahead in learning how to combat them at the drinking water or wastewater treatment level. It appears that PFOS chemicals that scientists cannot readily detect in the wastewater entering plants are being transformed into detectable PFOS compounds during the treatment process. Is at least one way they're swinging in. Wow. This is the terrible part where it becomes not just a water problem. PFOS also tends to adhere to sewer sludge, which wastewater treatment plants often convert to biosolid fertilizers and market for use on farm fields. As wastewater systems across the country continue to face PFOS and influence, and likely also face stricter regulations around the presence in the near future, they will be hoping for innovations and tools used to detect and eliminate them as well. But in the meantime, we have tons of PFOS now in our farm soil because wow. of this. Shit. Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure how to react to this episode other than I'm gonna try not to wear SPFs when it's raining, I'm crying, or I'm swimming. I'm gonna try not to stop at red lights, stop signs. Just don't stop. Don't go either. I can't do anything about the last one. Nope. <laughs> 
That one's out of my control, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, some of the things you can definitely take steps, but like, we're all gonna die at some point. Well, sorry, we correlate that everybody has died that was born, therefore we're likely to die. We are likely to die, we don't know for we're sure. Likely. But in the future, we might. I mean, when we're going like this, it's, it's bound to happen, I guess. But you know what? I already said this. I mean, this all comes back to the convenient way to live life. We do all these studies and we realize that it's happening, but nobody's aware of it. So nobody, it's not really front of mind for anybody to be taking action towards not doing these things because people are going to continue to create makeup that has SPF in it. There's going to continue to be higher manufacturers continuing to use the chemical that is killing fish or salmon. It might be specific to salmon. They might be making tires that specifically target killing salmon. We don't know. Maybe the tire, big tire hates salmon. They might. We don't know. It just seems like the whole world's out to get salmon at this point. And as we're talking about water pollution, hmm. odds are if people are actually trying to take a big crack at water pollution, they're going to focus on something bigger than one of the ones I just talked about because these seem so insignificant compared to, but they're contributing massive contributing. amounts to the problems. Exactly. And yet, we've talked about before with being able to, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Where we can buy and sell whatever we want. So I, a free market? <laughs> free market. Free market. Maybe that's the word I want where we are able to buy it so people are going to supply it. They're not going to say, no, I'm not going to sell you things with SPF because it's harmful for the environment. I'm not going to sell you these brakes because they have copper in them and they are detrimental to our environment. They're going to continue to supply it so long as they're making money for it and nobody's putting any environmental tax on it or anything like that to make it more unaffordable because it's doing damage to our environment, which is the really sad thing that it's just kind of turned a blind eye because people are profiting from it. Yeah, so long as things are profitable, we think things are running as it should be. Yeah, when they're not. Because somebody getting rich is the right way for the society to be working, so it can't be wrong. It's basically how we make it work. Yeah, and that's really sad. I mean, people should be having this knowledge, and I had no idea that this is all stuff that I'm readily contributing to the, unfortunately, pollution of our waterways. I'm sorry, everybody listening. I'm taking part in this. I'm stopping at red lights and I probably I didn't ask for no copper in my brakes so I'm probably doing it I'm sorry I wear SPF lotion I do these things just as all these people listening probably are unless they aren't then boy am I wrong I mean we might have avid bikers in the group in which case <laughs> we, good on you we very well could have someone that is like I'm doing all these things to avoid contaminating our waterways in which case send us an email we'd love to have you on an episode that's amazing I have already bought my coffin that will be containing <laughs> yeah. nothing but fungi so that I can be reabsorbed into the earth oh. within a month. We're on our next episode. Tell us about it. It's sad. Like my existential dread episodes, this is where it ends. Take from it what you will, but you're informed and not all of these have an answer. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Stay tuned next week where we do not, I don't know, sadden the shit out of you. <laughs> 
Hopefully. We'll try. I mean, the bar is going to be pretty low. <laughs> As we did on this episode. Unless Taylor set out <laughs> to do that. Who knows? We'll play it by ear. We'll try. But in the meantime, I have been Taylor here consuming a beer because overall it's, it's filtered water, so it's better for you. Here with Chelsea drinking wine again because filtered and good for you. That's got the Mayflower to where it was. So we are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening and we will see you next week. Listen to the water, listen to the water Rolling down the river Listen to the water, listen to the water Rolling down the river Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through also please if possible leave a five-star review as that really helps us in the algorithms should you wish to interact with us please check us out on your social media of choice i bet you we are there and if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes or tell us that we're wrong and terrible either way please send us an email at journey to the fringe at gmail.com for now i'll see you in the next episode